Good evening. Good to see everybody here tonight. Glad to have those of you joining us on our social media platforms. You can find us there on Facebook and Twitter at HBC Tullahoma. YouTube is Highland Baptist Tullahoma. And then our phone live streaming, uh, you can call our church office to get that number. So I encourage you to take the time to do that. Uh, go to our church website at highlandbaptistchurch.com. It's under the info tab that you can download the worship bulletin there. I encourage you to do that. We've got a lot of upcoming activities. We've got Vacation Bible School beginning this week. I'll say more about that in just a moment. But go ahead and get that downloaded. A prayer list is there also. You can download as well as worship bulletins for the children. Uh, if you need those in person, they're all in the windowsills. So I encourage you to do that. While you're there on our on our church website, uh, go to the far right hand side, click the give online tab there. Uh, you can do your online giving there. You can do it in person. Offering envelopes are in front of you in the pew. Uh, and you can put those in the plates on the sides here or at the doors when you leave. Uh, but it's a very simple platform there online for you to do that. I encourage you to take the time to do that if you can. And then also don't forget Vacation Bible School uh, is coming up, as we said, starting Monday. It, it will help us a lot if you go ahead and pre-register. Uh, we don't have that particular picture on, for the screen for tonight. Uh, but even if you're looking at it on, on the screen there, holding, me holding it up, you should be able uh, to scan it with your phone there. Uh, so if you forget to do that, you can rewind the video and, and catch it there. Or you can just simply go to our Facebook page. It's so much easier there. As well as our church website at highlandbaptistchurch.com. The link is right there on the first page. So I encourage you to take the time to do that uh, as we get ready for Bible school. And that will help us out a lot. So thank you all uh, for being here tonight. And Brother Mike's going to come and lead us in our first hymn of worship. Scanning with the computer, I guess, is kind of like the old Morse code. <laughs> Shows my age. Take your hymnals tonight. Let's sing 227. Praise him, praise him. Miss Pat. Savior reigneth forever and ever. 
Amen. Uh, Brother Mike always says I'm throwing him a curveball with these messages that I'm doing. It's hard to pick some songs uh, to go with the sermons. Uh, we're going through the life uh, of Jesus, uh, and I want to say tonight is no different. <laughs> I'm sure this one was a hard one to figure out what in the world would we sing uh, here. This is about John the Baptist, but it's also uh, a very uh, troublesome story of what happens uh, with the death of John the Baptist. So we're just going to begin with Mark chapter 16 and verse 14, uh, talking about the greatest man who ever lived, uh, and you'll see what we mean by that uh, when we come uh, to that particular part. So take your Bibles and turn to Mark 6, verse 14. Let's stand as we read God's Word in honor of His Word. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you in prayer tonight, I pray that you will uh, show us through this episode, this passage about the life of Jesus uh, and his ministry and his work here in particular in what he had to say about John the Baptist. Show us, Lord, some application for our lives that we might apply it to where we are, uh, to be faithful and walking with you and serving you and doing all that you would have us to do. And Father, I just pray that you will help us to heed even the warnings that we're going to see, uh, that, that so often we put ourselves in, in compromising positions uh, that can lead to sin, and sin can lead to destruction for our lives. And so, Father, I pray that uh, this message will speak truth into our hearts to lead us and to guide us into the way that is right and everlasting. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I came across the story in remembering about uh, the Los Angeles Crusades of 1949 it was the first great evangelistic campaign of Billy Graham. Uh, it was organized by the Christian group Christ for Greater Los Angeles. Uh, they had set up a tent that held 6,000 people. It was put in a parking lot, uh, and the tent had to be enlarged to 9,000 because it was still too small. Uh, there were several Hollywood figures that attended that first great crusade uh, there in Hollywood, uh, and several were converted. Uh, and, and, and the interest of the local and national newspapers was piqued, especially when a man by the name of Stuart Hamblin uh, announced on the air that he had been converted. And so reporters were sent to investigate. Uh, this man, Stuart Hamblin, uh, had, had, had not been uh, in a, a church-going uh, man. Uh, he had been against the Lord, and, and so when he came to the Crusades and gave his life uh, to Jesus Christ, that made news. It not only made news in Los Angeles, it made news uh, nationwide. Uh, and so reporters were sent to investigate this young preacher who dressed. Uh, any of you know how he dressed? What kind of a suit color? I haven't ever worn one. Pistachio green. <laughs> <laughs> he, he wore a pistachio-colored suit uh, with flaming red ties. 
Uh, he spoke in, of obviously, his southern uh, accent from North Carolina there. And the incredible impact that he had on all those who came to hear him was astounding. Uh, the campaign was scheduled for three weeks, but it was extended to eight weeks. Could you imagine that? Uh, during that campaign, Billy Graham spoke to over 350,000 people, and by the end, 3,000 of them had decided to convert to Christianity to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so subsequently, uh, he, it was subsequently described as the greatest revival since the time of Billy Sunday. Uh, after that crusade, Graham, Billy Graham became a national figure in the United States, uh, and the last meeting took place on November the 20th, and, and Graham preached, and he said, I don't believe that any man can solve his problems of life without Jesus Christ. He said, all across Europe, people know that time is running out. That held true then, and that holds true today. As it was for Billy the Baptist, as many of the newspapers called him in 1948, so it was in the, in the 20s uh, of the first century for John the Baptist. Uh, John was in his early 30s. He was only about six months older than Jesus. He dressed differently. Uh, he didn't wear green suits, but he wore uh, animal skins. He ate grasshoppers and honey. Uh, what a spectacle that would have been. Uh, and as he began his ministry, people flooded to hear him in the cities. The crowd spilled out even into the deserts uh, so that there would be room to hold them. And even though he was one of the more obscure people uh, in the Bible, he's introduced by Jesus as the greatest man who ever lived. Jesus said this, notice carefully how he came on the scene in Luke chapter 3 and verse 1 through verse 3. Luke 3 says in verse 1, In the 15th century of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria, and, and Trachonitis and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, uh, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness... And he went into all the region around Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, that's the way John the Baptist comes on the scene. Now, John is listed with all of these. And if you notice in these verses here, there's some, some people of, of, of importance who are named here. There's one Roman emperor. There's a Roman governor. There are th three tetrarchs. And there are two high priests mentioned here along with John the Baptist. He was important, and the time of his appearance on the stage of redemptive history is incredibly significant because John the Baptist's importance is significant even to Jesus. As I said, Jesus called him the greatest man who ever lived. If you look at Matthew chapter 11 and verse 11, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no greater than John the Baptist. Jesus called him the greatest prophet who ever lived. Uh, in Luke 7 and verse 28, he said, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John uh, the prophet. So think of all uh, the Old Testament uh, prophets that you've heard about. He says he's, he's greater than any of those. Jesus called him a burning 
and a shining lamp. John 5 verse 35 says he was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. And the word lamp there literally means a wick. Uh, a wick that is, is something that's consumed when it's burning. Uh, if you remember when I showed you the, the oil lamp that we had before, uh, it just sometimes they would just be curved like this with a little place at the end for you to lay a wick into the oil uh, to burn. And so that's what he's saying that John the Baptist was like. He was like a wick that would be consumed. John the Baptist was consumed by his message and his purpose consumed him and then all of a sudden he disappears off the scene. The multitudes uh, responded about John. And here's what they said about John in John chapter 10 and verse 41. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And so the birth of John the Baptist, you think about that. Uh, there's more that's been written about the, the, the birth of John the Baptist uh, than any other person in the Bible except for Jesus Christ. Uh, look at Luke chapter 1. Uh, in Luke chapter 1 and verse 14 through verse 17 it says, And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth, talking about John the Baptist, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn away, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. If you go on down in that same chapter in verse Verse 76, it says, And you, child, speaking of John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And then a little bit further in verse 79, it says, To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So the, the preaching of the disciples throughout Galilee uh, began to reach the ears of Herod. Herod had heard about Jesus. When you go back and read the previous verses there, in verse 7 through verse 13, uh, you read about Jesus sending out the 12 apostles, what we read uh, in, in Matthew's gospel this morning. Uh, but you also read there uh, that they cast out many demons in verse 13. They anointed with all those who were sick and healed them. So Jesus had sent out his 12 disciples and they began to follow in his steps. They're doing great and mighty works also. And that news of, the, of what they're preaching also finally reaches the ears of Herod. Herod had heard about Jesus and the news began to trouble him and to disturb him. Apparently, it, it began to cause some spiritual conviction. Because what it wound up doing is what we begin to find out here in verse 14. It brought back to Herod some memories in his mind, the memory of John the Baptist. And we see that in verse 14 down through verse 16, Herod's memory of John the Baptist. So it told us there in verse 14 that King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Verse 15 goes on to say, But others said, He's Elijah. And others said, He's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. 
So think about that. The opinions about Jesus spread like wildfire as the, as the disciples preached. Herod began to hear all that was going on. He heard about this man called Jesus who, who preached about righteousness and, and who worked enormous miracles. And Herod began to be troubled in his conscience again. He, he was stirred in his heart. It's almost like uh, the gospel was pricking his heart. And he was living such an immoral and murderous life that he could not escape the guilt, especially when Jesus, a righteous person, appeared on the scene. He thought he had gotten rid of all that when he got rid of John the Baptist. At first, when he hears about Jesus and he hears about his phenomenal work, he's confused. I mean, he only knew one man who was able to do mighty works, and that was John. And so Herod begins to conclude, other people have what their opinions are, but Herod's opinion is, this has got to be John the Baptist who's risen from the dead. That is, that he's risen or reincarnated is maybe what we would maybe say in the body of Jesus Christ. However, others, they believed and told Herod, no, 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 it's not John. This is Elijah. He was Elijah, uh, one of the other prophets. Or as we'll see, Herod refused to believe it was anyone other than John the Baptist. And so it begins to stir up these memories in his heart. It begins to prick his heart when he begins to see what Jesus is doing and he hears the work of Jesus Go back and we're going to see as those memories are stirred, we see Herod's murder of John the Baptist. You come to verse 17 and we, we step back in time, if you will. Remember, here's Herod. He's still stirred in his heart. And, and verse 17 tells us the memories of what had happened. For it was Herod, it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. And so Herod's reaction to Jesus is one of a guilty conscience. And the man, Herod, had lived a life of gross sin and immorality and murder, the murder of John the Baptist. And so we see the incarceration of John the Baptist in verse 17, that he has this guilty conscience because of several illegal acts. He had imprisoned. He had imprisoned a, un, a just man, an innocent man, John the Baptist. And because John had been preaching against the kind of life that Herod was living. And so get the picture. There's John the Baptist. He's, he's dressed in his camel hair. He's out there eating locusts, and, and he's preaching, and he's teaching the people in the deserts. And then he begins to preach the message of the gospel, and it begins to convict the heart of Herod. He begins to call sin, sin. And Herod begins to realize, well, wait a second. You know, sometimes when we're under conviction of sin, we want to blame the messenger. Instead of seeing the truth of what is going on in our own hearts and in our own lives. And so that's what Herod does. He, he, he puts John in prison. That's the incarceration of John the Baptist. Then we see the indictment by John the Baptist. Look at verse 18. Here's what John had been saying. Now, you remember the situation of what had happened. He had put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. That's twisted in and of itself right there. 
And so John had been saying to Herod in verse 18, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herod had married the daughter of Aretas, king of the, the Nabatean Arabs. Uh, it was on a trip to Rome. He had visited his half-brother. Uh, he was deeply attracted to uh, his, his half-brother Philip's wife, uh, Herodias. He seduced her. He talked her into returning with him. Uh, Herod's own wife, he was married at the time when he's doing all this, his own wife discovers his plans and she flees to her father, King Aretas. Uh, two serious sins, though, were committed by Herod. He had put away his own wife. Her life was probably threatened. If you, if you speak up or you say anything against me, you're done. Because if you remember the life of Herod, uh, he was always looking over his shoulder thinking somebody else was, was going to uh, take him out. Or, and so he was always worried about that. And, and, and now he had stolen his, the wife of his half-brother. And so it was against that immorality that John is preaching. And he said this, John says this, to the most powerful man in the world that John the Baptist lived in at that time. And so we see the indictment by John the Baptist. He just proclaims truth as truth. And then we see in verse 19 the indignation towards John the Baptist. So verse 8 19 tells us, And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. So get the picture. Here's, here's Herod who's under conviction, but over here on the side is Herodias, and she's also under conviction. She doesn't like at all what John the Baptist is saying. She is furious with John the Baptist. She is indignant towards him, and she's like, I'm going to do anything I can to get rid of this guy, John the Baptist, thinking that if she gets rid of the messenger, she'll get rid of the message. Notice the intimidation of John the Baptist in verse 20. Verse 20 says, For Herod feared John. Wow. I mean, here's the most powerful man in all of Palestine, in all of the, the nation of Israel there, and he is afraid of a man who's standing out in the wilderness with animal clothes on eating grasshoppers. He's afraid of John the Baptist, knowing, here's why he was afraid, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. Uh, so if you get the picture here, Herod has a guilty conscience uh, because of an inadequate religion. He had a sensitive conscience. He wasn't totally hardened against the truth of righteousness because notice what he does. He doesn't, I mean, he had the power. He had the authority. He could have killed John the Baptist at any moment. But what he does is he puts him in prison, and the Bible tells us here uh, that he put him there and he kept him safe. He didn't want anything to happen to him. Uh, he, he, was, he kept him alive for a, a little over a year. He recognized something in John, something that drew him, something that caused him to want to hear what John the Baptist had to say. And apparently, he even tried to observe and to do some of the things John preached. Uh, you go on and you read uh, that when he heard him, so he took opportunities to hear John the Baptist, kind of like Paul, uh, who would speak to those who would be 
governors and, and authorities uh, who, who he would get to speak to. Here's Herod uh, who, who listens to John the Baptist. And it says he was greatly perplexed. And yet he heard him gladly. Because the gospel was stirring his heart and he was under conviction and he, 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 was, he couldn't understand it. What's going on in my heart? I don't like what John the Baptist had to say about my sin, but it's like I got to listen to more. I want to hear more. When you're under conviction and the Holy Spirit is working in your heart, that's what's happening. And so as every genuine believer knows, religion is never adequate. Only a relationship with God will serve and meet the need uh, of the human soul. And so whatever religious works Herod did, all of that was never enough. Herod was inconsistent because he was loving the world and its things more than God and his righteousness. But he allowed John the Baptist to be there. He listened to him, and he heard him gladly. But then verse 21 through verse 24, we see the intrigue against John the Baptist. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. So he's got this huge entourage that's there. They're throwing a party like you haven't ever seen before. Everybody's been invited. All the dignitaries are there. And, and here is Herod who's going all out throwing uh, this party. Uh, it, it was on his birthday. He gives this banquet. And then verse 22 says, For when Herodias's daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to the half of my kingdom. So Herod, he, he, he had had a, a guilty conscience because of his parting and, and drunken spirit. And as an example of that, we see in this passage, he apparently follows the Greek custom uh, of celebrating special events with, with lavish feasts and heavy drinking and suggestive, passionate dancing. What a scene, uh, even reminiscent of, of what we see so often today. And so Herod, he has this guilty conscience because he's been living in sin. And, and because of him seeking, though, social approval above godly honor and respect, uh, it says when he was full of drink, he was, he was stirred in his heart with lust and passion. Not for his current wife that he's illegitimately with, but with his stepdaughter. Can you imagine the scene that's going on here? And, and, and she has danced before him and the whole entourage. They've all been enamored with her dancing. And he offers her anything. Whatever you want to the half of my kingdom. Someone once said this. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. And it'll cost you more than you want to pay. Herod's 
sinful judgment and his foolishness were seen in his reckless offer to offer that to his stepdaughter. He was foolish to think that he could just keep on living in his wickedness and in his sin. You know, nothing had happened to Herod at this point. He had gotten away with it all. You know, sometimes we look at sin around us and and we wonder, how does it seem like God just lets things go on and on and on and it gets worse and worse and worse? Know this, God is watching and judgment will come. And what we see here is in his foolishness, he makes this offer to his stepdaughter. And because the king, as king, he makes this offer, he stuck with it. He, he has to keep his, his vow, his oath, or, or else he will lose favor with his friends and associates. Now, he could have backed out of it, but it would have cost him socially. How often people use sinful things to seek social approval. Why does so much irresponsible and and loose and sinful behavior take place? Because people want social approval and acceptance. All you have to do is look at the peer pressure that's all around our youth every day. That peer pressure is there to be accepted by their peers. That if you do this or you do that or you get involved with us with this, then you're not a goody two-shoes. You're not one of those. You're like us. People who have low self-esteem and need to fit in. People who fear disapproval and unacceptance and rejection are those who are seeking social approval. And Herod, he has this guilty conscience because of his fear of what others might say. And that's seen in Mark chapter 6 and verse 26. Verse 26 says, well, let's just continue on and we'll read the rest of these verses up to 26. So he makes this vow to her in verse 23. Whatever you ask, I will give you up to the half of my kingdom. Verse 24, and she went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? And she said, there's no question for me. I want the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oath and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. Herod had made a foolish promise. That's why the Bible tells us to be careful what you vow, to be careful what you promise, to be careful about your words because so often we speak things in our haste and it gets us in so much more problems. And so notice Herod had made this foolish promise and now he faces, he's faced with keeping a wicked oath or breaking one of God's major laws, you shall not kill. And, and, and so his, his pride prevents him from confessing, I mean, he could, he's the king. He could have said, wait a second, what was I thinking? I, I was drunken. I, I, I was wrong. And he could have said that. He could have said, I was wrong. 
But because he feared being shamed and embarrassed by, the, by this woman's tantrums before his guests and being the butt of their jokes and amusement, he feels like there's no way that I can get out of this. He knew what he ought to do. But in his pride and in his weakness before others, he buckled to a terrible sin. That must have been a powerful dance for Herod to want to give her the half of his kingdom. But that's what sin does. Salome's dance borders on the incredible because think of this. She was from the royal family. And the fact that she would dance in such a way uh, is a sad picture of her character. And so apparently Salome's behavior was instigated by her mother, Herodias. Now, we don't know what Salome's age was, but she probably was at the very least a, a young woman because she's dancing a solo dance at a social event. And that probably wouldn't have been someone who was underage. This would have been a young woman. Uh, she was of age, personally responsible for her decisions. But notice how heavily influenced she is by her mother, both in her dancing and in what she asked for. He told her she could have anything to the half of the kingdom. What does she do? She goes running off to her mom to find out, Mom, what should I ask? What do I need to ask? She was influenced by her mom. She was immature in both her spirit and her personal responsibility. She didn't have the ability to make right decisions and she was easily led into this irresponsible, sinful behavior, lacking self-esteem and a strong spirit. She's a picture of so many today who lack that self-esteem and a strong spirit and walk with the Lord, of many who sense a great need that I just want to fit in. There's a lot of pressure on people around us, especially young people uh, who are youth and even in those uh, college age groups to do things that otherwise, if they were following the Lord and thinking clearly, they would have never done. That's who she's a picture of, of someone wanting to fit in. So they give in to the immoral and sinful suggestion and the lust of others. Notice the immediate execution of John the Baptist in verse 25. She came in. Mom had said, I want the head of John the Baptist. Verse 25 said, she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Notice this hideous request. Herodias' reaction to John is a revengeful spirit. Herodias's vengeful spirit is spelled out very clearly when you go back to verse 18 and verse 19 there. When, when John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And John's preaching against that immorality angered her to no end. She wanted him dead. But here was John the Baptist. Uh, here, here's Herod who's keeping John the Baptist alive. He's even entertaining him. He's even listening to him. And, and so she's like, I want him gone. Apparently, she had plotted all along uh, hoping this whole event would trap Herod into executing John. Herodias's life is a picture of vengeance and its causes. She wanted to live like she wanted to live and not be told how to live 
by somebody else, not by the king, not by some, somebody who's righteous like John the Baptist, and certainly not by God. She wanted to continue in her life in sin without any interference, without ever being reminded of it. She wanted everything and everyone removed out of her presence that reminded her that she was sinning. Do you get the picture? That's the way the world is today. As long as you keep your religion in the walls of your church, as long as you don't go out there and talk about Jesus, you're fine. But you go out there in the community, you go out in the school, you go out in the workplace, and you start talking about Jesus, it begins to bring conviction. And people begin to get angered. And notice she not only wanted to live the way she wanted to, she not only wanted to sin without interference, she blatantly ignored God. Her and Herod and all those who would have been in those leadership positions would have known God's word. They would have known God's law and, and, and his demand for accountability. And she ignored not only the word of God, but the message of God from John the Baptist and his righteousness in the way he lived. She ignored the fact that she one day would have to meet God after death. Notice the haunting remorse in verse 26. The king was exceedingly sorry. He's broken. It's almost like he's about to weep tears because he's been listening to John the Baptist. Something has been tugging at his heart, but he's stuck in his vow is the way he feels. It's a haunting remorse. I don't know about you, but I don't want to get to the end of life and to be stuck in that kind of haunting remorse, knowing that you had every opportunity to turn to faith in Christ, but you kept rejecting it, and you kept rejecting it, and now it's too late. Then we see the hurried response in verse 27. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison. The idea here is get it done before he can change his mind. Do it quickly before Herod changes his mind. Now she could get him to do what she had tried to find a way to do all along. Straightway, with haste, immediately the king sent the executioner. He wasn't even there. The executioner goes to the prison, cuts the head of John the Baptist off. What a horrible result in verse 28. And he brings John the Baptist's head on a platter. And he doesn't give it to Herodias. He gives it to the girl. She's the one who requested it. Mama's what, she, mama's what told her there. But she's the one. Could you imagine the, the, just the psychological impact that would have had on that young lady? To have a man's head sitting on a platter. Cut off. The grossness of the blood, the, 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 the neck there, the blood on the platter, no life within the head. And here's this head, and it's given to this girl what a horrible horrible 
resolved. Then notice the interment of John the Baptist in verse 29. Verse 29 says, When his disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. John's reaction to the whole scene was courageous loyalty to the Messiah. And even if it meant he had to die. What a scene here. John, all this time, even before he was arrested, and then once he was arrested and placed in prison, he stood firm for God. He preached righteousness while he was suffering in that rat-infested prison, that roach-infested prison for a year and a half. He was then ruthlessly killed as a martyr for the cause of Christ, the cause of righteousness. The question for us when we read this story here in chapter 6 is, why? Why is this story placed here in Mark's gospel. Why is it here? Well, remember what we just read this morning. In the chronology here, this is where this comes. It comes right after Jesus sending the disciples out two by two, where he named them two by two in Matthew's gospel. In Mark's gospel, he sends them out two by two. He had told them in Matthew's gospel, here's what you're going to face when you go out there. There's going to be people who are going to persecute you. There are going to be people who are going to hate you. They're going to despise you. They may even want to take your life. After the disciples have been sent out two by two, and yet before they have come back to report to Jesus what has happened, that's where this story is placed. Why? Three things I want to leave you with. Three applications for us is to remind us and them, the readers in that day, that discipleship is dangerous. Following Christ is not a bed of roses and easy peasy. It is a costly calling. Jesus had been rejected. The disciples would be rejected in the cities. Remember, he told them if you go to a city and they reject you, you you brush the dust off your feet and you keep moving on to the next place. They would be rejected in the cities. Remember, he said, not if you're persecuted, but when you're persecuted. And so now that is when John the Baptist is killed. In the middle of the joys of ministry, he reminds them discipleship is dangerous. They might be persecuted even unto death. That's a message for us, even though, as we said this morning, we are living in the comforts of of the grand old USA that we live in and the freedoms that we have here. That is not a guarantee that that's always going to be that way. God may even call you to go to some place where we don't have those kinds of freedoms. And so notice, it's there to remind us discipleship is dangerous. Secondly, this story is placed where it's placed to remind us that death has been defeated. 
that's one of the things that, that every missionary who accepts the call to go to the mission field has already determined in their life, the, this service for the Lord as a missionary. Because many times uh, when they accept that call, they don't know exactly yet where they may go. They've signed a blank check, if you will, before God and said, Lord, I'll, send, I'll go wherever you send me. And then uh, through, if they go through our international mission board, our international mission board works with them in determining the best fit for where they might go to and, and serving in the places that they might serve in. But there's a decision that you have to make because you know it could be a place where it's so secure nobody's going to know back home what country I'm in. And when those, when those missionary reports are printed in bulletins, my real name's not going to be there. There's going to be another name that's going to be there because I can't let my name be known in the place that I'm at because of the danger that's there and that it may lead to death. So they have to come to that place to realize I'm willing to go even if it means I'll die. Look at this story. Here's John the Baptist. What had he ever done? He had never hit anybody, murdered anybody, stole from anybody that we know of. He's just out there in the wilderness preaching the gospel that the kingdom is at hand. He's doing the works that God has called him to do. And people are coming to repentance and to a baptism of repentance. He's just doing what he's supposed to be doing. And the crowds are growing and the church is growing and the story's not supposed to end like that. It's not supposed to end with John the Baptist dying. He was doing everything right. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You think about all throughout the history of the church, there have been those who have been martyred for their faith in Christ. And, and, and though the enemy thought that would, that would squelch the, 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 the furtherance of the kingdom work of, of Christianity moving forward, it did just the opposite. It ignited a fire. Maybe we need some persecution to ignite the fire in our hearts. Whatever that may be and whatever that may entail, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. Here were 12 who had gone out emboldened. They had accepted the call. They had been commissioned by Jesus in the previous verses. And now they're out there sharing the gospel. And who knows if all of them are going to come back. Certainly after Jesus was resurrected and they were forced to be dispersed, some of them didn't come back as they shared the gospel. Many of them were, in fact, uh, killed and were martyrs for the cause of Christ. This verse, these verses are here to remind us, though, death has been defeated. John knew. He knew the cost. But he was still willing to serve the Lord even to death. There's a third thing that this story is placed where it is, is to remind us of the similarities of the death of John the Baptist and Jesus. What do we mean? Well, Herod's wife Herodias had conspired to have John arrested 
and put to death. Like we said, John the Baptist hadn't done anything. It was Herodias who conspired. And you look at the life of Jesus, it was the chief priests and the Pharisees who had conspired to have Jesus arrested and put to death. You look at John the Baptist, and John the Baptist was seized, he was arrested, and he was bound. Jesus himself was arrested, seized, and bound. The ruler Herod Antipas was responsible for making the decision to execute John, and it was also a ruler, uh, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, who was responsible for making the decision to execute Jesus. Herod had feared the crowd who held John to be a prophet. The chief priests and the Pharisees had feared the crowds because they held Jesus to be a prophet. Even Pontius Pilate feared the crowd. Herod's, wife's, Herod's wife wanted her husband to kill John. If you remember Pilate's wife, Pilate wanted her husband to free Jesus. Herod didn't want to execute John, but he was maneuvered by his wife to do so because he feared that retracting his oath given to his stepdaughter there in front of that crowd at his party would bring him social damage. Pilate, he didn't want to execute Jesus, but you remember, he was maneuvered by the chief priest and, and feared the crowd uh, would riot. And so he, he kept asking, what do you want me to do? And remember, he even offered them an out. He said, you can, you can take, we can take this bad criminal over here, uh, Barabbas, and, and we can crucify him instead of this innocent man here. And they said, no, crucify Jesus. Let Barabbas go. And eventually Pilate took his hands and washed them in that basin and said, I'm done with it. Crucify him. Jesus, his disciples took his body away. And buried him. In this story, John the Baptist's disciples took his body away and buried him. But that's where the similarities end. Because John the Baptist's body stayed in the grave. But with Jesus, three days later, he came out of the grave. Now one day, John's coming out the grave too. When the trumpet sounds, the Bible says, the dead in Christ shall rise first. And one of these days, John the Baptist is going to rise first. Uh, we've been reading in the book of Revelation, and you'll remember there around the great white throne, what do we see around the great white throne there? We see the martyrs, those who have been martyred. Their bodies, their lives, they're going to be resurrected. They're going to be uh, resurrected from the grave. But until then, until then, we need to be reminded discipleship is dangerous, but death has been defeated. And remind us that Jesus Christ has been resurrected so that one day we too will be resurrected with him to spend eternity in heaven. This life is not all there is. Be faithful to Jesus, even to the point of death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, wow, what a powerful story here of John the Baptist. What such a faithful, faithful man who preached the truth of your word and yet was arrested and placed in a dungeon and eventually beheaded as a martyr. All because he just told the truth. Father, we don't know what tomorrow may hold or 
the next year or 10, 20 years or even the next 50 years in this nation that we live in. Lord, help us to never take the freedoms we have for granted, but Lord, to use those freedoms to our advantage to share the gospel in whatever way and whatever opportunity we may have. And Father, I pray tonight that maybe someone has heard this message, maybe online who, or maybe here in person, who they just weren't sure they knew Jesus as their Lord and Savior yet. And so, Father, I pray that they would call out to you and say, Dear God, I know I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. I, I believe what happened to Jesus. He, he was innocent and yet he was crucified on a cruel cross. He was buried in a tomb and he arose on the third day so I could have eternal life. Jesus, come into my life and save me. I repent of my sin. I turn away from it. Help me to follow you all the days of my life. And Father, I pray that if someone's prayed something like that in their heart, if they're online, help them, Lord, to, to take the courage to send us an email or make a comment there so we can follow up with them. Or, or maybe there's someone here tonight in person. May they come forward in this invitation to make that public profession of Christ. But Lord, I know without a shadow of a doubt there are those who are here who know Christ as their Lord and Savior. There are those who are watching who are saved, and yet they've never really contemplated what would that mean for me? Would I be faithful even to death? Father, help us to realize that living the Christian life can be dangerous, but help us also to realize, Lord, death has been defeated already. And what the worst they could do to me is to kill me. Lord, to be absent in the body is to be present with Christ. So help us to have the courage, Lord, and the boldness and the faithfulness to keep pressing forward no matter how dark this world may be, no matter how much sin may prevail around us. Lord, let us be the light set on a hill that cannot be hid, that people will be drawn to Jesus Christ who is the light by our works and by our faithfulness to share the good news. Have your hand upon us and use us in your kingdom work. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Brother Mike, come and lead us in our hymn of invitation.
Just want to remind you, this coming week is Vacation Bible School, so we won't have our regular Wednesday night service. Uh, so just keep that in mind. Next Sunday, I will be gone uh, for our Southern Baptist Convention in Anaheim, California. So be in prayer for us as we are uh, traveling there and back the following week. Brother Matt will be preaching next Sunday, so I encourage you to come uh, and to hear him and support him as he comes to share the Word of God uh, next Sunday morning and Sunday night. So you be back with us, 915 uh, on Sunday morning, next Sunday for Sunday school, uh, 1030 for worship. If you can or if you have kids, bring them out for, vac for Vacation Bible School. Uh, you'll have a wonderful time this week. You have a blessed week, and we'll see you next time.